0: Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, warts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation.
1: All right, uh, easy one, name and occupation. Uh, My name is Jim Ruland, and I'm a writer. What
0: kind of things do you write?
1: I write a lot of different things. Uh, By, uh, professionally, I'm a, a copywriter, that's my day job. I work in advertising, and I've been doing that for over 20 years. And I also do a number of other kinds of freelance types of writing Uh, writing book reviews, um, columns, cultural columns, and uh, I also do some ghost writing, I do some editing, Uh, I collaborate with people, help them get their stories out in the world, and uh, lastly, I do writing for myself uh, fiction and nonfiction. Do
0: you have a preference? if you could ideally write one thing what would
1: it be that's a great question um, I think what, how it usually works though is that when I'm working on a novel working on a nonfiction project seems so much easier where uh, I just think all I have to do is to talk about what happened but when I'm writing a nonfiction project and I'm in the weeds I really miss the freedom of being able to mix things up
0: it's nice to have that wide range of
1: things to work on. And then also the grass is always greener. Yeah.
0: There's a reason. <laughs> saying, you wanna, there's no reason to not search for it. Um, all right. Did you do any writing when you were in the Navy?
1: I did not. I was a deck seaman and uh, I was not college educated. I, I went right from high school to the fleet. And when you're... When you get sent to the fleet, first division, you don't actually get the extra training that, say, say uh, someone who would get into, you know, someone who's gonna be in a weapons system is gonna get, you know, basic, you know, math and skill. Someone going into an engineering field will get, like, the basics of electronics and electricity. So I didn't get any of that. We got, like, this is a paintbrush, this is a chipping hammer, get to it.
0: What did you learn? as far as implement, implementing that into writing or communicating?
1: Well, I think that I learned that, you know, the people who tried to, you know, guide me as a young person were right. That, um, you know, they would speak in metaphors about doors of opportunity and windows of opportunity, you know, opening and shutting. and. Uh, On the first day of boot camp that stopped being a metaphor. I realized that doors had closed and But they didn't have to I didn't have to be where I was that I had put myself in this position literally I volunteered so uh, When I got out of the military, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I know I wanted to Go to college and I wanted to be successful whatever it was I was gonna work hard to make sure that I didn't have to go back to the military.
0: Was going back an option?
1: Oh, it was always an option, but I knew that I didn't want to like, I didn't want to turn wrenches.
0: That's me right now not wanting to go back to a corporate desk job. I quit that (laughs) in August to do this and I'm struggling and I'm like, I don't want to go back. All right. So uh, in all of my interviews, actually, I haven't really talked to anyone about written communication in that collaborative form that, that you do. Scientists are constantly collaborating. What is the um, when you spent time working on your own craft? What is that like to? Or what are the hurdles to communicating when you collaborate, even with ghostwriting?
1: Well, there's a lot of ways to approach it. Um, I mean, we have this myth, I think, of the writer in the garret, you know, with the quill and the you know the inkwell and pouring their their heart and soul out onto the page and then s- sending it off to an indifferent world, but um, as soon as you try to, um, put your work out there, as soon as you publish, you are collaborating. Uh, you're going to be working with agents and editors and marketing people, you know, the, your, your art or the craft or whatever it is that you're working on, um, is going to become a commodity and that takes a team of professionals with whom you'll be collaborating. So any kind of writing ultimately becomes a collaboration. Um, for things that, that I've done I, th- I think my you know for ghost writing and things like that that um, my the skills I learned in advertising were very helpful in that you pay attention to you know think get thing to be as succinct as possible and to always be considering your audience and to be attentive to, to voice because that, that'll tell you how you craft the piece um, in terms of working with people like my first, the first kind of writing I did was punk rock zines and that's a a fanzine. So it's, you're coming at a not from a critical point of view, but you're, you write for a fanzine to get access, to get closer to the things you love and you care about. And, uh, and so that's what I did. And that was my first regular um, audience, writing for that audience. And I still do that, by the way, I still write for punk zines. And even though I don't get out to as many shows as I used to, um, it's something I still very uh, passionate about. You know, now I write about other things other than, you know, the music itself, but about being an old punk, being a dad, being a a sober punk, you know, all of these things kind of work their way in Uh, to get back to your question about collaboration. uh, A lot of the skills that I learned um, interviewing bands were really big help in terms of dealing with people one-on-one for ghostwriting assignments or co-writing assignments.
0: You mentioned voice earlier, um, getting your voice. How, are there are there quick ways of doing that? You know, because these, these grad students are coming out with just a, a bunch of knowledge and data and probably haven't spent a lot of time figuring out their voice. You know, are there tricks that, that they can use to sort of Figure out that
1: quicker, figure out that voice quicker. Well, I think um, being a good reader, an attentive reader, someone who is you know looking, you know, reading in the field that you want to participate in is, I think, always step one, is always essential. And I don't think, I say it's always step one, but I don't think it ever stops being a step that you leave behind. I mean, if you want to write in a particular field, you always need to know like what's current, what are people writing about, um, how are people doing it. You know what are what are shortcuts that you can take? What are ways that you can make a better impact? Um, what are ways you can avoid redundancies? Um, just just knowing uh, the field and will give you an appreciate you know, as someone in the audience will give you an appreciation for how you want to approach it. Okay. Well, your most recent um,
0: co-authorship was with Keith Morris. The, was he the lead singer of Black
1: Flag? He was. He was the first singer. Uh, Black flag when most people when you think of black flag you think of Henry Rollins and I think he was the singer for the longest period of time absolutely he was but he was the fourth singer Um, it took a little while for Henry to come along and and so Keith was there first he was there in Hermosa Beach with uh, Greg Ginn and other people and uh, Raymond Pettibone uh, was one of the original one of many original bass players—I shouldn't say original, but many- one of many bass players—they went through till they found uh, their their guy, um, Chuck Dukowski. And uh, but yeah, he—that's Keith on the first EP, the Nervous Breakdown EP, and it's very much a South Bay, LA viewpoint.
0: Were you concerned at all with? with
1: some of the things you write for let's say the city more, or whatever or some of the smaller no I really you know my background in punk rock I really felt like I had a good insight into what readers wanted like I've read a lot of biography. we probably all read a memoir or biography that was 35 pages of when I was a child and my education and my parents and their grandparents and I knew that was not the way to go for this audience you know we wanted to start like on something really, uh, you know, meaty and intense, because that's Keith. He's an intense guy. However, I think the book, My Damage, the even more interesting than some of the things he said and experiences he had and things that he did in in punk rock and in music was his relationship with his dad, which was just really key to understanding Keith and understanding his development. So uh, that absolutely is there. But I just don't open with it, and when we get to it, we get through it really fast. Like, you know, Black Flag was a hardcore band; the songs were shorter uh, and more intense. So by design, we made the chapters that way too, so that they were shorter chapters, and uh, you know, a reader could get through, you know, two or three of them without really realizing that hey, I'm reading a book.
0: You know, I I feel like that's I wonder if any of the, the hardcore black Flag- Black Flag fans that read that noticed that. Did you
1: get any feedback on that? We, I don't know about like you know the whether it reads like a hardcore song. I think that's kind of a stretch. But, um, but a lot of people commented on how reader friendly it is, and they read it in, you know, um, you know, a day or two or a weekend. Um, I mean, it was really very cool because the audience was a lot of people who you wouldn't consider readers. Um, these are not people that read. 20 40 50 books a year. These are people that you know you had to wait to get wait for payday to get their money to go buy the book and then then they read it. So when they did and they had good things to say about it, I was um really proud. Did
0: you co-write
1: that or were you the ghost? I co-authored it. So my my name's on the cover, along Keith, just smaller as it should be. It's still on there. But uh the artwork is by Raymond Pettibone. Um you know, who's who's made his own change into has an amazing fine art career, and uh, but the type, you know, looks a little bit like a black flag cover. So it doesn't even if he had to use a microscope with my name to be there with Keith and Raymond Pettibone. Artwork is just fine with me.
0: So I want to ask a quick question about ghostwriting. I want to know what um, this is going to come out wrong. So I might need to maybe. Re- to rephrase it or kind of explain it, but what added benefit does ghostwriting have to communication? Because it's, it's not so much the individual's words, it's someone else writing their words for them.
1: Yes and no. Um, I would say it is their words, but the syntax would be very different. Like in the example of Keith, Keith is a storyteller. If you get around that guy, he will—he'll t- tell you a story. Uh, maybe not right after he gets off stage because he's diabetic and he's got—you know—he's sixty-one years old and he—you know—might need a moment before he's—you know—ready to slap people on the back. But, um, but he's a storyteller, and but he has a very—he's not a linear storyteller, and he's famously uh, forgetful of dates, and he's also not someone with a big ego in terms of his own you know, output. He's not really trying to mythologize, you know, Black Flag or Circle Jerks or his contributions. He, he usually can't remember which song is on which album and what year it came out. You know, he's not one of those, he's not a uh, historian of his own myth, myth. not at all. So, so he, he needs, you know, some, you know, someone who can function kind of like a, uh, um, like a project manager is then I would say that's kind of, you know, what a ghostwriter does is as much project management as it is writing. Because you spend a lot of time with the person, you record them, you get their words on tape, and then you go back and say, Well what did you mean by this? Or how did you how did that make you feel? Or um, and you figure out, you know, where to put the emphasis and, you know, how to construct the narrative. What back and
0: forth was there between
1: well, it really depends on the type of project. Keith was all in. And because, you know, and I was all in too, uh, and because he's uh, a legend, and a huge part of the music that I grew up loving. So I was willing to spend as much time as he was willing to spend, and he was willing to spend a lot. So we spent dozens of sessions um, together, you know, in his apartment in LA, just. Telling stories.
0: It, it's weird to, see, when I first moved out here in 2008, I would go up to Hillcrest. And I always thought it was weird to see, um, his name is totally up my head, uh, Judas Priest. Um,
1: Rob, Rob Halford? Rob Halford, yeah. yeah. yeah
0: so I, I saw him walking around once and I'm like, that looks familiar. And I asked someone, and he was like, oh yeah, it's Rob, it's Judas Priest. And I'm like, like the Judas Priest? You know, so like, he seems so just chilling, just walking, you know? Like. I, I, I wanted to ask him what his own stories were, because... Um, all right, so...
1: Keith's very much like that, by the way. He walks everywhere he goes. And, oh, yeah? yeah.
0: That's, is he recognized a lot?
1: Oh, yeah, he, well, he's got dreads down to his ass, <laughs> right. so it's inescapable, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, like, even people who don't know who he is, and they know he's somebody. You know, he's very unassuming, still wears Vans t-shirt, punk rock t-shirt, you know, you know, he, he's still like, you know, he, he's, he's kind of like a cult figure in that he's, he's not tucked away in some Bel Air house, he's not fabulously wealthy, but like, everybody knows who he is.
0: Uh, you just, you said the dreads, do you know Ted Washington? I don't. Uh, he does, um, he's, out, he's out of here, based out of San Diego here, he does Puna Press. I'm on the. I, they published a book of my poetry. They've got Ola Haiti, um, Ed, um, Ed Decker, um, Michael Klam.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I know Michael Klam.
0: Yeah, so they put. He he publishes these stuff and he does his own art and, and writing and he's got also like super long dress. Oh right. Yeah, so he's like stands out. Yeah. He's recognizable. So. But, yeah. Um, all right. So throughout uh, your various assignments. How do you determine the tone
1: and identity of the narrator? Of the narrator? Um, well, then a ghostwriting project, that's pretty easy because that's who it is. But that's something you have to find. Um, I kind of think about the mood. If it's fiction, I think about like what the mood of something that I'm going after. Um, lately, I've been writing a lot of darker fiction that is, uh, you know, somewhere in the spectrum between horror and a ghost story, I've become enamored with ghost stories lately. And they have a very specific kind of mood. And, uh, and so there's you, know, you pay attention to the genre and something like if you, for example, if you're going to write a, a horror story, I mean, there needs to be something you know, dark and creepy happening in the, you know, the first couple of pages. You know you, know, I mean, sometimes a horror story appearing, in a anthology of horror fiction, will let you know that things, something bad is going to happen. But you know the re- the reader you know needs some context for all that. You just can't take a left turn into that. So so genre will play a lot a lot to do with it, um, and also audience. I mean, I'm not someone who thinks too much about where something might be published. Um, I'm actually pretty terrible about that. But I always think about who uh, who the audience is in terms of the reader. And that comes from my advertising background because you can't write anything until you know, you know, who, you know, and that's a very, um, you know, retail and mercantile way of looking at it. If you're going to sell to somebody, you need to know who you're selling to. You know, that's the audience. Are they, are they business people? Are they, you know, stay, stay at home moms? Are they, you know, weekend warriors, you know, what, you know, what kind of, what kind of audience you're trying to reach will determine how you speak to them
0: is do you think that's harder for scientists doing publishing writing research papers or grant grant proposals or that because there's not so much storytelling as they're just
1: reciting facts right well i would i would say that well no you're not just reciting facts because there's an objective right you're you're trying you're reciting facts but there's there's a desired outcome And the desired outcome, whether, you know, give me or my university a bunch of money or publish these findings in your journal or share this information with your colleagues so that we can continue, um, whatever that desired outcome, uh, that's the, that's what you're writing towards. Um, that's, will inform how you open your piece and also like how you close it, you know, like in advertising, we call it a call to action. You know, you, you always you never write something without um, trying to give the reader a path for them to take or inspire them to take some kind of action, whether it's clicking a link, making you know picking up a phone or you know you know booking a reservation at a hotel or airline or whatever it might be. It's there's always a path. And
0: there's a goal. Mm-hmm. So I, I spoke with um, a Scripps Research Institute How we we were, we got into some really weird, deep stuff, but we were talking about, um, she writes patents, she writes for, for trying to get patents approved, and when she writes it, she writes it for a specific audience, but then it goes to a patent lawyer who completely takes that language and changes it, you know, so I'm like, it's got to affect the, like, how, if you can't write for, if you don't know your audience, you have to have that someone
1: in between. You have to that, that go between to translate. Right. That's very common um, in a lot of forms of, you know, in the corporate world, where someone will write something and then the message will change. Like, someone will decide, well, this message would sound better if it came from one of our executives. And so now it has to change again because it needs to sound like came from a, a, a person and not just uh, your friendly corporation, you know, whatever your your corporate voice might be. The template. Mm-hmm. The boilerplate.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about your editing process. Um, how do you ensure what you leave on the page is enough to communicate clearly and not water down the subject or leave out enough to where it's not understandable?
1: That's a great question. I, I think... Um, you know having you know objectives in mind for what it is that you want to communicate will help determine you know what to leave out for example in in narrative storytelling you you're always generating conflict so that your person your your hero can can overcome adversity or succumb to it and then give them an opportunity to reflect and you know rejuvenate and try again but you're always generating conflict in in narrative and and so even when it's something like you know a nonfiction account or you know like let's even a book review for example you might be looking for what was the book's path to publication if they had a really long journey that's a form of conflict that might be interesting to talk about if they're person is writing in a field that's very crowded and enjoy, yet enjoys success anyway, that's a kind of conflict. Or if it's something trailblazing and new, um, that's, yeah, and you have to kind of convince people this is a kind of storytelling people should pay attention to, that's, again, another form. <coughs> so like, I think it's funny, uh, most writers, I would say, in life uh, avoid conflict wherever possible but on the page, uh, we seek it out. Yes, I would agree <laughs> with
0: that. Because I, I, at first, I, I thought you were going to say that we, as a writer, avoid conflict, but I was like, no, when I write, I'm all about conflict, especially my poetry, because that's kind of what poetry is to me, It's mm-hmm. conflict. An emotional person in the world, that's just how I see it. Um, but anyway. Um, okay, so uh, then when it comes to the amount of space you have, news article and a book with your mindset going into that article um, with that limited
1: amount of time been. well this um, this was something that I challenge let me start over again this was a big challenge for me when I first started writing uh, book reviews in that I would engage in all the necessary throat clearing saying, here's the book here's the author here's the setup here's what it's about And then I would, you know, smack up against my, uh, you know, the word limit and realize that I hadn't really got said the things that were most meaningful. That if I were to come up to you in a, in a bookstore and you asked me to recommend this book, I hadn't said the things that I might say to you in a a 15 second conversation. And so I paid attention to that. Like, okay, um, you know, I need, you know, and it can't be a slave to the format. You know, what is it you really want to say? What is it you want to communicate to the people? Um, and so I keep that in mind first. I, that's always my first my first. Okay, I put that down first, even before, because beginnings and endings can be tough. So I, I start with the thing I most want to say. And and it's I think that's a, really helped me a lot because I've seen in my professional writing that I do for advertising, we don't talk about word limits anymore. It's all character counts. Um, as things move, you know, online and become increasingly digitized, there's less and less space to get your, your point across. Now, there'll, hopefully there'll always be, you know, big giant novels where you can spend as much time as you want making your point. But it's, I think it's a really good, uh, practice to always know what's the thing you most want to say and, you know, make that your starting point. Even if it's in your headline, you know, then, then you're free to, to meander.
0: Patrick was creating this, um, this move, this how to create a comic move. And I remember they were doing their elevator pitch on Twitter. So you had to fit it in, with what that story was about in 140 characters. And I think that's a good test yeah. sometimes to really hone in. get to, down to the point of what we're trying to say and mm-hmm. kind of flush it
1: out from there. Yeah, and I think like, for example, if you follow comedians on Twitter, uh, that can be a really uh, useful tool just to study. Um, comedians are often responding to things in pop culture. So um, it's really interesting to see how they use what they presume the reader will already know as, you know, to springboard what they have to say. I follow
0: a lot of comedians. On Twitter. I think Twitter is best used for comedians and athletes and musicians. Like they're perfect for that. Um, do you think a lot of a lot of it is attention span of an audience?
1: No, I. I well, yes. I was going to let me sort I was going to say no, but the answer is yes, absolutely. One of the hats I wear is I organize a reading series. And I've been doing that for about 13 years now. And in, just in that period alone, I've seen a decline in just how long people are willing to sit in their seats. Um, people would just, you know, get too antsy when a piece goes on and on and on, even when they're enjoying. And it was a very, when I was in uh, Europe two summers ago, there was a very vast difference in the way people consumed poetry and narrative in a performance space there as opposed to here. Here is more like entertainment. So you got five or seven, five, six, seven minutes to entertain me, otherwise I'm turning the channel. Uh, Over there, there was much more patience and much more willingness to sit for a longer piece, even if it wasn't funny or moving. It was just, it was to be experienced and they were there for it. So I found that really interesting. But unfortunately, yes. our attention span is getting smaller.
0: Does that make it harder for writers?
1: Oh, it's be? never been easy for writers. <laughs> so it's it's just yet another thing that another obstacle for us to overcome.
0: And I'm sure writers are very creative people.
1: Sure. Well, it's really interesting to me like uh you know the the niche that writers are always you know have to carve the, out for themselves because I mean, like, like if you look at like Twitter, for example, at best, you know, 30 percent of the population uses Twitter. Everyone else doesn't, um, and it's just. But it's still one of the many things that um, writers are competing against for, for readers. They're competing with um, movies and television, and you know, new streaming TV and video games and you know, now virtual reality, all these things, you know, competing for eyeballs and attention.
0: I, I, I don't know what to make of it. I'm, I'm sort of that Will Smith character, my robot.
1: You know, <laughs> I'm just like, mm, like, I'm living with it, I'm dealing with it.
0: But there's a part of that uncanny valley that freaks me out, um, especially in that new Rogue One movie. Um, all right, just a couple more questions here. So your wife, Nubia. Yes. She teaches science. Um, she also uh, spent a lot of time in the pharmaceutical field. Are you able to connect any of her scientific pursuits with your writing and how the two work together? Not not yours and hers specifically but just in general the two fields.
1: Well I think when I with, let me start over again. With uh, Nuvia's uh, passion for education and science, uh, the third part of that Trinity is art and that's always been a part of what she does. So she actually uh, teaches science like an art class. Uh, I mean, it's definitely a science course, but there's, you know, she asks her students to, to do a lot, you know, to, to work hard. And that's something that, um, I think is for me is valuable, value been a valuable takeaway in my writing and that, you want to make writing easy for people to get into, but you also want to give them something to do when they're there. You don't you don't want to spoon feed your readers, or they'll find something else that's more interesting and engaging. So you um, want you want your you want your readers to to work a little bit too, and that'll make it more satisfying.
0: So be creative as a communicator and speaker or educator. Maybe. Do you have any advice to outgoing MIT students about?
1: effectively communicating to and engaging an audience? Well, I think, um, yes, absolutely. If you're one of those people that says, I'm a scientist, uh, I'm not a writer, um, I think you need to scrap that way of thinking. Uh, writing is just like anything else. It's a tool. Uh, it's a craft. Uh, some people write at a level that where it's art or they practice it like art. But it's something that can be learned. Um, you know the desire to communicate effectively is, can take you to some really uh, interesting places and put you ahead of your peers who are um, you know, lack the willingness to go there. Um, things are as technology moves forward, what's interesting to me is that, You know, even though we see more video in advertising and more video in our online experience, it still works. And all of that stuff is written. And if you can express yourself in a way that's engaging and interesting, you will be ahead of the game, ahead of competition.
0: Can creativity be learned?
1: I think so. Um, I think that I mean, I think we've all had an experience where we've read a book or seen a movie, maybe it's one in a genre that we normally wouldn't, like say a, a science fiction story or a fantasy and it'll just kind of put you in a headspace and you'll think about, wow, I never really thought about that before. And the next thing you know, you're spending the next few hours or few days kind of what ifing around the world or like, you know, you know, what if? What if we all drove Land Rovers instead of cars? You know, how, I don't see any traffic signals in Tatooine, You know, what is? How would that work exactly? And and then the next thing you know, you're kind of engaging in some creative problem solving for that's theoretical, but you know, all implanted by you know a story.
0: And a lot of scientists are, are always testing things, so in a way, they kind of I guess have to be creative some of our biggest uh, discoveries were by accident.
1: You know, well, it, well, it's just kind of like writing. Nobody really knows what happens when you write. Um, all we know is that it only happens when you write. You know, if, uh, you know I can think about you know, writing and I can ponder and I can plan, but until I actually sit down and start doing it, None of those things are going to take shape, and they almost always take shape in a way that's not entirely expected.
0: That's all I have. Do you want to add anything else?
1: Do anything else? No, no. All right, cool. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. No, you're really welcome. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Yurick. The Great Communicators Podcast, Podcast, Grad Comics Live, Grad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking Comic Book series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX is made possible possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more about about GradX, as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators Podcast, go to
0: gradx.mit.edu. For more information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.